All right, guys. If you would turn with me in your Bible to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles is in the part of your, your Old Testament that contains the history books. Uh, you, uh, you come through the Pentateuch, and then you've got Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and then 1 and 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 is where we're going to spend the majority of our time today. As Pastor Mike already told you guys in the welcome, it's been two years, March of 2020, what normal is or was then, has changed significantly. Again, it was two weeks to flatten the curve, and we were introduced to stay-home church. During that time, there were Christians on social media posting images like the ones that are one that's going to come up behind me. While the sentiment of, of relying on God is important, It'll get up there, I promise. <clears throat> the, there's a problem with it. You have depicted what happened at Passover, where the Israelites were instructed to put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, and the angel of death would pass over their houses. And people were trying, Christians were trying to equate this this religious movement, this religious idea with illness and and sickness and disease. And there became major struggles and major questions because very faithful, praying people died. This is a question we have to deal with. We've, we've prayed, we've done the things, and God doesn't seem to be moving the way we think he ought to. He's not healing, we don't have the job, the money's not there, whatever the question is, whatever the thing is, and, and I, I hate to say this, I, I, but I have to say it, and I, I want to say it tenderly, a little carefully, but it's possibly because we've got the wrong expectations in our prayers, and that brings up questions, questions like we've been dealing with in this series. The last two weeks, uh, or last week, we answered if, whether or not we still need the Old Testament and why God required the Israelites to annihilate the Canaanites. The rest of the series is online. If you want to check on our, on our website, uh, you can check on Facebook or, or our YouTube page. You can get access to the rest of the series. I highly recommend you go back and look at it. There are a lot of questions that we've answered. This week, we're going to deal with questions 9 and 10. The last questions in the series is, will spiritual revival heal our land of problems? And in a few, few minutes, Pastor Mike is going to answer the question as a follower of Jesus. Can I claim... Old Testament promises as my own. Can I claim promises made to Israel as my own? So uh, the first question, question number nine in the series is, will spiritual revival heal our land of problems? The answer to the question is not, not exactly. Um, it's just 
not. Now look, the next couple of minutes, I'm going to explain some things, and it, it dawned on me during the first service that I'm, I'm retired from the military, I'm a patriotic person, and I'm going to answer a question that might get me shot in some places. Please, um, y'all, y'all, I'm the messenger. But many people turn to Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, as their scripture reference when they need hope during a, a trying time in, 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 in our nation. Much like the promise of Passover where the angel of death would pass over the homes of the Israelites that were marked with the blood again. This passage that we're about to look at contains a promise that was to Israel. It was to God's people that if they humbled themselves and prayed, God would would bless them. Let's take a look at it. So beginning again, uh, 2 Chronicles, verse, verse 14 of chapter 7. If my people who are called by my name, start there. The first phrase there, my people, is so important. My people, simply put, refers to Israel. Here's the part where y'all, y'all give me a little bit of grace. It's not America. It never has been. It never will be. It's not even Americans who follow Jesus. That, that, the, that word, those, those two words, my people, are, are literally describing Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, my people has always been a reference to the, to the Israelites. So much so that at times in Chronicles, in, in this, this, this book itself, it's actually changed to my people Israel. There, there's some clarity there. So we'll start looking at the passage. We'll start the message answering the question with that. It's Israel. It's not America. So again, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear them from heaven. This list of things, humbling, praying, seeking, turning from wicked ways, that's, that's turning from sin and to God, simply. We, we tend to call it in, in the New Testament church, we, we, we call that Repentance. It's important to remember that that repentance is is something that comes back up in the Bible. At Pentecost, Peter told the the new church to repent and and be baptized, turn from your sin and be baptized as the instructions when they asked him what to do in light of the message that we have now. That's something that remains true to us now, but that's what this is, is it's Simply turning away from sin and to God. Now, what was their sin? What were the wicked ways they were, they were, that Israel was dealing with in particular? Well, if we were to keep reading this passage in 2 Chronicles, get down to verse 19. It says, but if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I've given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel. So God says... Turn away and forsake decrees and commands that I've given you. That is 
the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of our Old Testament. It's the laws. It's the rules. It's the instructions that God originally gave to his people. That's the Torah. It's the law of Moses. It's the, the instructions that God's people had when this passage that we're reading today was, was written. God told them simply, you do what you're supposed to do. You honor me. I'm going to take care of you. If you don't, I will uproot you from your land. So then we turn back to, to, to verse 14 again. And God says he'll hear from heaven. And then I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Their being the land of Israel. He's, he's, just, he's, he's told them, if you keep the truth that I've given you, if you follow my ways, I will take care of you. Now, again, the, the, the truth is this is not for America. I want to work through why it's not for America, though. The context of this passage, to begin with, is, is the dedication of the temple. Solomon had completed the, the construction of the temple. The, the Israelite people were dedicating the temple, and Solomon had this experience with God where God gave him these words that we, we've read plus some others. He was telling Solomon, you've done what you're supposed to do. You have this temple, this place to honor me and for you to worship. If you honor me, I'm going to honor you. However, if you disobey me, I'm not going to honor that. The context here, again, it's not about America. It's not about a virus. It's not about about anything like that. He'd, there were certainly plagues in Israel's history, but this was during the building of the temple. It was specific to that situation. However, last week during the Do We Still Need the Old Testament message, one of the things that I reminded you guys was that there's always application to our current setting from Old Testament messages, from Old Testament passages of Scripture. There are things we can take from those. So I want to leave you guys today with three things that we can take from this passage. Does God desire revival? Does he want to heal hearts everywhere? Absolutely. Does God want America to turn to him to humble ourselves and pray? Yes, 100%, the answer is yes. It's always been yes and always will be yes. God wants us to turn to him. He sent a prophet named Jonah to a place called Nineveh, was the capital city of a, of a pagan nation, to preach a message of repentance that when they turned from their ways, God would lift judgment from them, and he did. There are examples of, of non-Israelite nations receiving grace from God when they turn to him. Does God want America to turn to him? Yes. Does God want revival in the church? Does he want us, the church to humble itself to pray and to come back to him. Absolutely. 
Paul dealt with that in, in several churches that he ministered to. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul was scolding the Corinthian church for tolerating and even bragging about immorality amongst them. And there are churches in North America right now, denominations in North America right now, that are splitting over this kind of issue of who can serve and who can't serve, or when there's biblical instructions that are absolutely clear on the topics. Welcoming and tolerating are two totally different things. Does God want the church to turn to him, to humble ourselves, to pray to him, to return to his ways? Absolutely, there will never be another answer. And the third thing, does God desire revival in our lives individually? Does he want you and me to humble ourselves and pray? Absolutely. When we stray from God, we know that confessing and returning to him allows restora restoration. It allows us to return to relationship with our creator, but it does not mean that we're free and clear of disease. It doesn't mean that if we have disease and, and we become super pious in prayer that he's going to heal us. It does not mean that. It doesn't mean that wealth is going to come our way instantaneously simply because we choose to follow Jesus. It does mean that healing from self-sovereignty is possible. It means that spiritual restoration is possible by following God, by healing, allowing him to heal us by humbling ourselves and praying by returning to him. Here's what I want you guys to remember. Does God want revival in America? The answer is and always will be yes, yes, yes. But that healing that comes from that is not for disease. It's for the control sin has in our lives. One last thing that I want you guys to remember from this. Even when the promises aren't to us, God's promises are something we can lean into. We can learn from promises that aren't to us because God does make other promises that are to us. And any one of those promises, he keeps his word on. I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. I am working all things for your good. I will withhold no good thing from you. I am your shield and your great reward. I am your light and your salvation. I am the stronghold of your life. I will give you eternal life. I will give you abundant life. I will give you peace. I will give you rest. I will give good gifts to those who ask me, and I will give strength to the weary, power to the weak. I am close to the brokenhearted, and I will comfort those who mourn. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I will hear you, forgive you, and heal you. I will be found by those who seek me. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will do whatever you ask in my name. I will listen to you, I will fight for you, I will set you free, and I will not change. 
I will redeem your life from the pit and crown you with love and compassion. I will finish the good work I have begun in you. I will never blot your name out of the book of life. I will come back and take you to be with me. I will deliver you and you will honor me. I want you to open your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 29, if you will, please. Jeremiah is one of four major prophets in the Old Testament. You've got Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. They're considered major prophets because of the amount of revelation they delivered to Israel uh, during the captivity, the period of captivity, and that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. From Jeremiah chapter 29, we'll read verse 11 in just a minute. Now, it's my job following Tyler to help you understand how he came to that conclusion. You see, Bible students and Bible scholars have a process they work through that helps them understand what parts of the Bible are directly aimed at them and what parts of the Bible are aimed at other people in other circumstances. The Bible is filled with promises, and promises, the promises of God's Word, not only are always kept, but they have been providing hope and comfort and guidance for people for centuries. During particularly dark times in my life, I have clung to the promises of God. There are 8,800 promises in your Bible. Did you know that? About 7,700 in the Old Testament and about 1,100 in the New Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28, that one chapter alone contains 133 promises. Promises are everywhere throughout Scripture, both Old and New Testament, but here's the kicker. Are they all for me? Are they all for you? And how can you tell? That leads us to question number 10. Can we claim Old Testament promises for ourselves? The Bible says that promises are valuable. They're not only valuable because they reveal the character and nature of God. He is always faithful and always keeps his word, but they're valuable to us because they light our path. They illuminate our path. They provide direction, motivation, guidance during unsure and uncertain times. Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4 that God has given us his very great and precious promises. They're not just great, they're very great and they're precious. And through the promises you may participate in the divine nature. Do you realize what that means? That means that because God is faithful to his word, he does not change, he always keeps his promises. When I allow those promises to guide my way, when those promises help me decide, when those promises help me respond or react, when those promises keep me from worry or anxiety, I'm the beneficiary. It's as if Jesus Christ himself is living through me because I'm trusting in the promises of God. That's what divine nature means. I want to read you something. Just bear with me as I read this paragraph one author puts it this way, God's promises are meant to move and motivate us. They're meant to instill hope. They're meant to give us courage. They're meant to defeat feelings of loneliness, inability, and fear. They're meant to give us peace when things around us are chaotic and confusing. God's promises are meant to blow your mind while settling your heart. They're his gifts of grace to you. Sounds good, doesn't it? But here's the kicker. How do we know? How do we know which are my promises 
and which promises belong to someone else. I mean, is your faith walk as simple as turning through the pages of your Bible, finding a promise, claiming it for yourself, owning it yourself, and then holding on? No, not exactly. Here's the big idea for today. I'm going to put it on the screen. Some promises are not given to us, like 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. However, all Scripture is relevant in our lives. Some promises just aren't for me, and yet all Scripture is beneficial in my life. Today, I'm going to show you how you can know which promises are yours. Today, I'm going to show you which promises are not, how to claim God's promises, how to stand on God's promises, and also how to apply biblical truth from a promise that may not be yours to claim. One of the most precious promises, the most oft-repeated promises in the entire Bible is Jeremiah 29 and verse 11. I've seen this promise in greeting cards. I've seen this promise on bumper stickers. I've seen this promise on social media. It's everywhere because of what it says. Read it with me. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Raise your hand if you're familiar with Jeremiah 29, verse 11. Yeah, look at all the hands. Lots and lots of people. This is a world-famous passage of Scripture. And it sounds good to us, doesn't it? For I know the plans I have for you, God says. Wow, does that mean God has a plan for my life? He goes on. Plans to prosper you. Wow, is God promising to prosper my family? Is God promising to prosper my business? Not to harm you. Is God promising that I'll never be harmed? Plans to give you hope and plans for your future. Sounds good to us, but the question is, is it for us? Let me tell you how to tell. Here's number one. Anytime you study your Bible and you come across a promise of God, first you must determine the original meaning. That involves context. You heard Tyler use this phrase, context. Context in Bible study is king. I'm not a big fan of people who just kind of pick and choose verses that say what they want them to say and they kind of throw them out there. No. Context is everything. If you're going to determine whether or not a promise in your Bible is specifically for you or not for you, you have to examine the context. In Jeremiah 29, verse 1 gives us the context. Do you know what this is? That promise is part of a letter that Jeremiah wrote the leaders in Israel when the nation was suffering through the Babylonian captivity. In fact, we could back up just one verse to verse 10 and get more of the context. The Babylonian captivity, according to Jeremiah 29 and verse 10, was only going to last 70 years. The problems were not going to persist in an ongoing way. The suffering wasn't going to exist indefinitely. There was a limit to it. The context is Israel being disciplined for their idolatry, their paganism, and God allowed the Babylonians to come take charge, take their culture, take their identity almost for 70 years. But after that 70 years, they would be reinstated. Now, unless you are Israel personally, and unless you are being disciplined by God individually, and unless you're suffering through the Babylonian captivity, that promise is not directed at you. No more than the God's promise to Abraham was directed to you. In Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15, God promised Abraham, you're going to be the father of a great nation. Well, I don't know about you, but that's not a promise to me. 
I'm not going to be the father of a great nation. God told Abraham, your descendants are going to number as the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore. Did God make that promise to any of us? Well, that seems obvious to us. A, a promise like Jeremiah 29, 11 doesn't seem quite so obvious. That's why you have to examine the context. Here's number two. Then you discover the application. This is how Tyler ended his message. We started with context, and then we examined the application. What principle exists in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11? You see, there can only be one meaning to a passage, but the applications are almost endless. That's the, why the Bible is such a powerful book. The Bible has the ability to speak to so many different people on so many different levels, in so many different circumstances, in so many different ways because of application. Jeremiah 29, 11 is not a promise to me, but the application is there for me as well. That's why the entire Bible is beneficial to us. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 that all Scripture, Old and New Testament, is profitable to followers of Christ. So rather than claim the promise for ourselves, we can still apply the principle to our lives. How do we do that? Two ways. Number one, you identify the similarities between Israel and Jeremiah 29, 11, and Mike in the New Testament church in 2022. Identify the similarities. Now, I'm not a member of God's chosen nation, Israel, but I am a member of his chosen people, the church, according to Ephesians chapter 1. So like Israel in the Old Testament, the New Testament church has been chosen by God. So there are some similarities there. God has a plan for them and God has a plan for us. Also, this was a difficult situation for Israel that was supposed to be teaching them a lesson. The Babylonian captivity was not going to last indefinitely. There was a limit to it. I also understand from the New Testament that my trial and my difficulty has a limit. God's not going to allow my suffering to go on indefinitely. There are similarities between the two. Here's number two. Once you identify the similarities, then you seek New Testament confirmation. Where else in the New Testament does it say basically what Jeremiah 29 and verse 11 says? There are plenty of places. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, for instance, says that God has this unbelievable way of taking bad circumstances and turning them around and making them good for us. We benefit from them. James chapter 1 says the same. The trial, the difficulty, the problem, it's not going to last forever. And if you allow the work to be completed in you, even our suffering can become good. Even our turmoil can benefit us. There's plenty of New Testament confirmation for the principles that are taught in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11. You see, the goal in your Bible study is consistent. If you're going to examine one passage one way, you need to examine another passage that same way. People who pull verses out of context and just throw them at certain circumstances to make themselves feel better are not being consistent in their Bible study. Here's something else you need to know. The same principles apply to New Testament promises because, get this church, not all New Testament promises are aimed directly at you. Some New Testament promises, and if you want to turn to Mark chapter 16, I'll give you one last example and then I'll quit, were for specific people at a specific time under specific circumstances for a specific purpose. And my life, your life, doesn't fit. Look at one good example, Mark 16, beginning in verse 16. Now, if you have a study Bible, 
you already know that according to my study Bible, verses 9 to 20 do not appear in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts we have of Mark's gospel. I should say Peter's gospel. He dictated it and Mark wrote it down. So right away, the passage we're about to read is suspect already. But having set that aside, look at verse 16, Mark 16, verse 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Now that's pretty straightforward and simple, isn't it? That particular message is repeated multiple times throughout the rest of the New Testament. You believe and follow Jesus Christ, you're in good shape. You decide not to believe and reject Jesus Christ, you're in trouble. That's what he's saying. But now watch. And these signs will accompany those who believe. Okay, wait a minute now. If I follow Jesus and I believe, now Jesus is telling them these signs are going to go along with that belief. They're going to validate that faith. And now he gets specific. In my name, they'll drive out demons. They'll speak in new tongues. Is everyone aware that there is a divide in the New Testament American church over signs and wonders and whether or not these gifts actually exist today? I believe the New Testament teaches that the sign gifts and the wonderment gifts, the laying on of hands, the healing, the the speaking in unknown tongues, these were gifts reserved for the first century apostles of Jesus Christ. They validated their message, but they're no longer in use. Keep reading. They'll drive out demons. They'll speak in new tongues. By the way, church, if you've ever heard someone while praying begin to babble or chant in rhythmic rhyme, that's not the New Testament gift of tongues. You see, when Peter spoke at Pentecost and Peter addressed a a whole myriad of nations that had gathered in Jerusalem for Passover, there were many different languages, many different tongues that were represented there at Pentecost. Sorry, I said Passover, but Pentecost. And when Peter stood up and told the story of Jesus Christ, every individual person heard that message in their native language. That is the New Testament gift of tongues. You see, tongues are not supposed to be unintelligible. The gift of New Testament tongues are to make things intelligible. But wait, he's not finished. Verse 18, they'll pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. It is that verse, Mark 16, verse 18, that our... Hillbilly friends up in Tennessee and Kentucky and West Virginia. Now, I can use that term because my dad's a hillbilly. He's from West Virginia, born in Kentucky, all right? That's where those snake-handling churches get their motivation is from that verse. Is that a promise from God that when I go hunting, I don't need to wear snake boots because if a snake bites me, it's not going to harm me? I'm a believer. I follow Jesus. These signs are supposed to accompany it. How about drinking poison? If I drink poison accidentally or intentionally, does that mean I don't need to go to the doctor and have my stomach pumped? I mean, after all, isn't that a promise? Not exactly. It will not hurt them. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get Well, that is the apostolic gift of healing. God can heal anyone he chooses. But the idea that he's given me that gift to go to the hospital and lay my hands on somebody like John did or Peter did or Paul did or James did is unacceptable. It's not happening. Now, take the two principles that I gave you earlier and apply it to that passage. That appears to be a promise for all believers. 
Here's number one. Determine the meaning, the context. What is the context of Mark 16? Jesus is about to leave the earth. He's about to leave his closest followers. This is 40 days following the resurrection. Before he leaves, he gathers them around, and he says, he gives them the great commission. He sends them out to tell his story. This is a specific promise to a specific group of people at a specific time for a specific purpose. These signs would validate their message when they went and told the story of Jesus Christ. And then number two, but what about the application? Are there principles here? Yes, there are plenty. There are plenty. And those principles are also validated in other parts of the New Testament. There's not one place in the remainder of the New Testament that tells me I can play with snakes and if I'm bitten, I won't be harmed. Not one other place. But there are places in the New Testament that tell me I should participate in the Great Commission. I should tell the story of Jesus. Simply by inviting other people to church, I'm participating in the Great Commission. And when I do so, I should do it boldly because like God was with his apostles, God is with me as well. Let me read what I read earlier and I'll close. Once again, God's promises are meant to move and motivate us. They're meant to instill hope. They're meant to give us courage. They're meant to defeat feelings of loneliness, inability, and fear. They're meant to give us peace when things around us are chaotic and confusing. God's promises are meant to blow our minds while settling our hearts. They're his gifts of grace to you. My friend, the promises in this book are incredibly important, incredibly valuable. You see, Your problem isn't that life is just too hard for you. It's just too hard. No. Your problem may be that you've lost your awe, your wonder, your reverence for a God who makes promises, always keeps them, and those promises are given to guide and motivate us through this difficult life. Those promises are meant to help us deal with that difficult life. So God bless you in your Bible study. Today we wanted you to know how to figure out which promises are yours and which promises may not be, but still have plenty of application. Let's pray. Father, I am very, very grateful to be even even able to gather with these people and to look into your word. Thank you for the privilege and the blessing that it is, the guidance that it provides. Father, for your 8,800 and some promises that are contained in your word, we give thanks Father, help us be wise and consistent as we study your word. Dismiss us now with your blessing. Go with us to our homes. Watch over and keep us, I pray. In the name of your risen son, Jesus Christ, amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Hope you make it a fantastic week. I will see you next time.